In verses 7 through 10 that we looked at a few weeks ago, Jesus said twice that he is the door, which means that no one can enter his sheepfold without going through him first. Jesus here is is claiming exclusivity, that he is the only way of salvation. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says something very similar when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the door, the only way to the Father, and the only way to enter into God's eternal kingdom is through Jesus Christ. Now, starting here in verse 11, Jesus says twice that he is the good shepherd. Verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And here we have the fourth I am saying. There are seven of them in the Gospel of John, and this is the fourth one when Jesus says, Ego ami. Now, those of you who have been following along know that Ego ami is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word for Yahweh. That is the covenant name of God. So Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Actually, the Greek says, um, um, ha poimen ha kalos. I am the shepherd, the good one. Now, when he says this, Jesus is connecting himself with the history of Israel and the history of the Old Testament. The first shepherd we come into in the book of Genesis is Abel. And then Jacob was a shepherd who also became the father of the nation of Israel. Joseph, a type of Christ, was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. And of course, David was a shepherd king. And he pointed us to the Christ who would become the shepherd king. This also fulfills the Old Testament that describes Yahweh as the Messiah or the shepherd of Israel. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 11 says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And so Jesus is saying, I am the shepherd, the good one. Now, there are two Greek words that Jesus could have used here when he said good. There is agathos, which uh, is where we get the word agatha from, which means good. Actually, agatha Christi means the good Christ. So agatha could be uh, a word that, that Jesus could have used here. It means to be morally good. But that's not what Jesus, that's not the word Jesus chose here. He used the word kalos. Now, kalos can mean several different things. It can mean excellency. Kalos can mean beautiful. But in this context, it most likely means the authentic one or the genuine one. So Jesus is saying, I am the true authentic shepherd of Israel. Now, what Jesus is doing here is contrasting himself with the false shepherds, that is, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes and anyone else that came before him claiming to be the Messiah. And we know from scripture that there were several
people who rose up claiming to be the Messiah. And so he's contrasting himself with the false shepherds. And he identifies himself as the good shepherd also by this next phrase. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now Jesus contrasts that, his actions of laying his life down for the sheep with the hired hand. Look in verse 12 and 13. He who is hired, who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand does not put his life on the line for the sheep when he sees the wolf coming. He actually takes off and runs. In verse 13, he flees because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. Now, Philip Keller, who was a former shepherd, some of you may have his book on the 23rd Psalms, a shepherd's look at the 23rd Psalms, but he wrote many different books and articles about being a shepherd. And uh, Philip Keller wrote about the first time that he bought his own flock with his own money. And this is what he says, they belong to me only by virtue of the fact that I paid hard cash for them. It was money earned by the blood and sweat and tears drawn from my own body during the desperate grinding years of the depression. And when I bought that first small flock, I was buying them literally with my own body, which had been laid down with this day in mind. Because of this, I felt in a special way that they were in very truth a part of me and I a part of, of them. This made those 30 ewes exceedingly precious to me, he says. However, he also contrasts that feeling with what he observed from a hired hand uh, in a ranch nearby. And he wrote of this hired hand, he said, he ought never to have been allowed to keep sheep. His stock were always thin, weak, and riddled with disease and parasites. So that's a contrast between how a hired hand takes care of the sheep and how the true shepherd, one who owns the sheep, takes care of his sheep. And when the wolf comes, the hired hand will run, but the one who owns the sheep, he will stand and fight. Now this has application for the church today, does it not? Today we are going to ordain Josh Ravan, and we're going to ordain him, ordain him as an elder or as a shepherd of this church. So elders are considered shepherds. Actually, technically, we are under shepherds of the chief shepherd who is Christ. Peter tells us as he directs his uh, comments to the shepherds in 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 1 through 4, Peter says, so I exhort the elders among you. Now notice there, there's a plurality of elders here. There shouldn't be any debate whether there should be just one pastor or many pastors or one elder and many elders. Every time the elders are mentioned, it's always in the plural. And I think uh, part of the problem is our tradition sometimes getting in the way in our reading of the scripture. So the elders, just like deacons plural, there should be elders plural. This is too big of a task for one man to shoulder on his own. And so God designed it so other men would be able to shoulder the task and work together in shepherding God's flock. 
So Peter says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And he says this, shepherd the flock of God. So elders are shepherds. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So as under shepherds, we are to exercise oversight. Um, Paul writing to Timothy uh, calls the elders overseers. And what do overseers do? They oversee. So elders, overseers, they are to exercise oversight and lovingly feed and lead the church to do the will of God. And as under shepherds, we are also not to be like the hirelings. We are to guard and protect God's flock from wolves, and that can take many forms. It could be like Paul warned the Ephesian elders that there would be wolves even among the elders themselves that would rise up and scatter the flock, and so we have to be careful to look for wolves in our midst. The wolves can also come in the way of false doctrine and uh, false teaching, and so the elders need to be ready and understand their doctrine and understand false doctrine when they see it and be able to protect the sheep from that. Now, when the wolves come, and it may take the form of actually the world, um, the elders need to stand. And unfortunately, as we've seen in recent days or months, there are some shepherds, elders in Canada right now that are having to go to jail for standing firm on God's word. Now, Josh, I hate to tell you, but things don't look really good here. And it may be sometime in the future that the shepherds uh, will have to either go to jail or face persecution. And historically, it also meant that the shepherds would actually be physically killed uh, for their flock. And so we pray that it won't come to that. We pray that the Lord will move among this nation and around the world to bring things back under uh, his sovereign plan. And he is sovereign, so this is a part of his plan. But we pray that the Lord would bring this world back around. But the truth is, the elders are not to be like hired hands. We are to stand firm and protect the flock of God. And if we do so, we certainly don't do it for the reward. But if we are faithful, Peter tells us that we will be given an unfading crown of glory. Now, Jesus is our example, so we lead his sheep by following him. And that's the way it should be. Well, the shepherd knows his sheep. Look in verse 14 and 15. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me, I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. 
Again, Jesus says here that he is the good shepherd. Like he said, I am the door twice. He is the good shepherd. He says this twice. And he says, I know my own and my own know me. And what Jesus is doing here is he is expressing the essence of salvation. I know my own and my own know me. Being a Christian does not just mean going to heaven when you die. It's more than that. It's about a personal relationship with Christ. When Adam and Eve sinned, our relationship with God was broken. In Adam, as we are all born in Adam, we all die and we become sinners by nature and sinners by choice and we die both spiritually and physically. Our relationship with God was broken. He is a holy God, he cannot have fellowship with sinners. And so Jesus has come to reverse that. He has come to give us life because we are dead. He has come to raise us from the dead spiritually and ultimately raise us from the dead physically. So he has come to give us eternal life. He has come to restore our relationship with God Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden. That relationship was severed when they sinned. And Jesus has come to restore that relationship uh, with God. And so this is what Jesus meant in John 17, 3, when he says, and this is eternal life. Now, some people would expect Jesus to say, this is eternal life, that you go to heaven when you die. That's not what he says. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you. So eternal life, first and foremost, before it's a place, it's a relationship that we may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life is to know God and to know the Son of God. Now, we do go to a place called heaven because that's where God is. We have eternal life because we have a relationship with an eternal God. John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. So he's talking about a place here. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's the essence of salvation. That is where we're going. We are going to a place, but that place is only special and great because that's where Christ is. And we will be with him. Now, that's why Jesus came. He came to call his own sheep into an eternal relationship with him. Like the angel said to Joseph, he will save his people from their sins. And that's why Jesus came. He came for a rescue operation. He came to save his sheep. So Jesus knows his own, he says. I know my own, and my own know me. So being a Christian is 
having a relationship with Christ, to really know him, to follow him. In Philippians 3.10, Paul tells us that his purpose, his purpose in life, my goal in life is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering. My determined purpose, he says, is that I may know him. And that's a good question for each one of us to ask. What is your purpose in life? What is your ultimate goal in life? Now, we can make all kinds of goals, of work-related goals, making money, being happy. We have all kinds of goals. But what Paul is saying here is my ultimate purpose, my goal, is that I may know him. And if we make that our goal, just like Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. If we make knowing him our goal, then he will take care of the rest. That's the promise that we have from him. Um, so our goal should be to know him. He knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. Now notice the end of 14, this knowledge of Christ, this knowledge that Christ has for us and our knowledge of him is predicated on Jesus' relationship with his Father. I know my own and my own know me, and then he says, just as the Father knows me in verse 15, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. So my own know me, and my, I know my own, my own know me, just as the Father knows me. Isn't that interesting, that connection? In the same way, when Jesus spoke of knowing the Father, he didn't mean that he just knew about the Father. He means that he had an intimate, personal relationship with the Father. So our knowledge of Christ is, is not just knowledge about Christ. I think a lot of people in this world know about Christ, but they don't know Christ. They don't have a relationship with Christ. Jesus is pointing to, to this relationship. It's a deeper understanding and knowledge. It's a personal relationship with Christ. And so Christ knows us personally, and we know him personally, like the Father and the Son know each other personally. That's hard to wrap our minds around. But this is what Jesus is saying. This is what our relationship with Christ should look like. Now, Jesus said several times that the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Look in verse 15, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in verse 17, he says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life and I may take it up again. And then in verse 18, he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. What Jesus is talking about here is the means by which our relationship with God is restored over and over again. Jesus tells us that he lays down his life for the sheep. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, Jesus knew his mission. I came to give my life, he says, as a ransom for many. That's the reason and purpose Jesus came to this earth, born 
in a manger, the Son of God took on human flesh. So he knew what his mission was. His mission was given to him by the Father. Look there in verse 18. This charge I received from my Father. And so it was a charge to lay down his life for the sheep and to take up his life again. Now we have to ask the question, when did Jesus receive this charge? And there are many verses that point us to the fact that Jesus received this charge before the foundation of the world. Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world. This was an agreement. This charge was given to the Son. This was an agreement in the covenant of redemption. That covenant where the Father would send the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit to redeem a people for his own possession. And starting from Genesis and working all the way through Revelation, we see this covenant of redemption unfolding in the covenant of works, in the covenant of grace, and throughout the rest of the covenants. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, it says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Jesus was delivered according to the plan of God and to the foreknowledge of God. This was God's purpose, that Jesus come to this earth as the good shepherd and lay his life down for his sheep. Now, without Christ's death on the cross, there is no Christianity. Without Christ's death for his sheep, there is no salvation. This, this is the reason why the cross of Christ is at the heart of our message. God has chosen the proclamation of the gospel to save his people from their sins. I wish that I could reiterate this to a lot of evangelicals today. Because you can go to churches and sit through multiple sermons and never hear the gospel being preached. Never hear about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And that's a shame. Because not only do the lost need to hear the gospel, those of us who are saved need to be reminded over and over again of the gospel. Because if we're not, then we begin to think that it's our own works or our own good deeds that saves us, that gains merit with God. We have to be reminded that there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation or to earn credit or merit with God. It's only by believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that gospel needs to be front and center of every pulpit across this land and around the world. But it's a shame that many churches are just assuming the gospel, not proclaiming it. <clears throat> and what is this gospel? Well, Paul tells us what the gospel is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. So this is what the gospel is. Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. And he appeared to Cephas and the twelve. 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. The cross is where our shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. Jesus is saying it over and over again. He's talking about a relationship with God, a relationship with him. And then he tells us the means by which that relationship comes about is through his death for the sheep. So notice the gospel is not just about his death, is it? It's about his resurrection as well. He was raised on the third day, Paul says, according to scripture. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, I laid down my life that I may take it up again. Isn't that interesting? Jesus laid it down freely and Jesus took it up again. Tell me anybody that could do that other than our Lord and Savior. He's talking about his death. He's talking about his resurrection here. He says, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. So clearly Jesus is speaking of his death and of his resurrection. Now, it is this message that should be on the lips of every Christian. The message of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. This is the message that changes lives. We want to invite people to come to church, sure, but the message is not come to church. What we need to do is teach them, share them, proclaim to them the gospel that Christ died for sin and was buried and rose again on the third day. This is why Romans 1.16, Paul says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, that message of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Why? He says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's that message, it's the gospel that when we share it, God uses to change hearts and lives. He uses that message of his death, burial, and resurrection to call his sheep to himself. And Christians should have that message always on our lips, ready to share it wherever we are with those who need salvation in Christ. So if anyone believes the gospel, they will be saved. That's a pretty, that's a pretty simple message, isn't it? If anyone believes, he will be saved. Now notice this passage is also teaching us about his vicarious sacrifice. Vicarious just means in the place of another, right? So Jesus his vicarious sacrifice means that he sacrificed himself in our place, in the place of the sinner. This is also known as substitutionary atonement. And if you get anything out of reading the Old Testament of the sacrificial system of animals dying to cover sin, their blood, uh, if we get anything from the Old Testament, it should be this concept of substitutionary atonement. And of course, the writer of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. All of that was pointing to the final sacrifice of Christ, the shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. 
Now notice in verse 11 and verse 15, it says the good shepherd lays down his life. Notice that word for the sheep. Verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Now Carl Barth was once asked, what was the most important word in the Bible? That's an interesting question, isn't it? I'm not sure, I'm not sure what my answer would be. But his answer was very insightful. What is the most important word in the Bible? He said it was the Greek word huper. It's in English we call it hyper. But huper is found here in verse 11. He lays down his life for huper there, the sheep. 15, lay down his life huper for the sheep. Now, the word huper can be translated above, across, beyond. But in this context, when it's used with a genitive, and that's just how the Greek is constructed there, when, when this is used with a genitive, it is best translated on behalf of or for the sake of. And so what Jesus is saying is that I lay down my life for the sake of of my sheep, on behalf of my sheep, for my sheep. And not what Jesus is telling us here is that he is our substitute. He lays down his life for us. We were condemned under the wrath of God. And that's another word that you won't find too many places in pulpits today, right? The wrath of God. We were condemned under God's wrath for our sin. But Jesus died in our place and he took on the wrath of God onto himself. God's wrath was poured out on his son so that we could be forgiven. He died in our place. He died the death that we should have died. And now we are to live the life that he uh, tells us to live, right? So we are forgiven because of Christ's substitution. James Montgomery Boyce wrote, we are sinners. As sinners, we deserve to die both physically and spiritually, but Christ willingly died in our place, taking our punishment so that we might be set free from sin and its penalty to serve God. So Jesus lays down his life for his people, for his church. Paul tells, this, uh, tells us this in Ephesians 5.25 when he's talking to husbands, right? Husbands, love your wives. And how are we to love our wives? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We're to love our wives sacrificially like Christ loved his church. Now, there are a couple of observations that we need to make here. Historically, there's been an argument over who is responsible for the death of Jesus, right? Many people blame the Jews, and that has been a reason for the persecution of the Jews throughout the centuries, that because they are responsible for the death of Jesus. There are others that say that the Romans are responsible. But Jesus gives us the answer here, doesn't it? It shouldn't be a mystery. Jesus in verse 18 says, no one takes it from me. 
The answer is nobody, except for Jesus. No one takes it from me, but I laid it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. And we've seen this as we've been making our way through John. How many times did the Jews want to kill Jesus? There's one time that he went to his hometown in Galilee and they wanted to throw him off a cliff and it just says that Jesus is going to walk through their midst. And then we saw several weeks ago, they took up stones in the temple to stone him to death. And it just, it seems like, just the narrative seems like that Jesus either just walked away in their confusion or maybe even disappeared, but they couldn't find him. They didn't know where he went. Jesus has the authority to lay down his life. No one has the authority to take it from him. He said this to Pilate, John 19, 10 through 11. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. You don't have the authority, Pilate. The only authority you have is what is given to you. Jesus laid down his life freely. We see this also when the soldiers came to arrest him. We'll get there eventually in John 18, right? The soldiers came at night to arrest him. Judas betrayed him with a kiss and soldiers came. Jesus asked them, whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, what did he say? Ego ami. Now your translations say, I am he, but he said, ego ami, I am. And when Jesus said, I am, the soldiers drew back and fell to the ground. Some translations said they fell backwards when he said the name, ego ami. That just is a reminder that they couldn't have arrested them that night unless he willfully went along with them and willfully laid down his life. No one takes his life from him, but he lays down his life for the sheep. A.W. Pink said it was not the nails, but the strength of his love to the Father and to his elect, which held him to the cross. Richard Phillips writes, this should make all the difference to a believer's devotion to Jesus. This should answer your question is, should I get up and go to church on Sunday morning, right? What is your motivation? Look at what great love he displayed for us. He died in our place. He took on the wrath of God. That's why we come to worship him. That's why we come to thank him every week on Resurrection Sunday. We thank him because he could have left us in our sins under the wrath of God forever. And yet he gave his life to save us so that we could be free from sin, that we could be given eternal life, spiritual life, Physical life where we'll never die again. That is what our shepherd did for us. That's why we're here this morning. He said this should make all the difference to a believer's devotion to Jesus. We admire someone who dies for a principle. 
as the philosopher Socrates did when he refused to escape execution in ancient Athens. We extol a martyr who dies for a cause when Nathan Hale was captured by the British during the American Revolution. He gained lasting fame by declaring, I only regret that I have but one life to give for my country. But the Christian can look to the cross and say something greater than that Jesus died for the principle or for the cause of salvation. We can say he died for me. Nothing warrants greater love or higher praise than knowing this truth. Now, why would Jesus give his life for us? Why would God even care? Why would we go through the trouble? Well, it's clearly out of his great love for his sheep. Love. Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. And then he says to his followers, his disciples, you are my friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, that's not a work salvation. Jesus said another time, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, right? We obey him because we love him, um, because we are saved. Now, what is his commandment? Well, he has a lot of commandments, right? There are a lot of things we need to do as we become a follower of Christ. But there is one commandment that we must all begin with. What is this, what is the, this command? To believe in him. God commands everyone everywhere to trust in Jesus Christ, to believe the gospel, to trust him by faith. John 6, 40 says, for this is the will of my father. This is my father's will. This is his command that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. To believe in him. And I will raise him up on the last day. That is a promise. So there is no greater love displayed in this world than the love displayed by Christ on the cross. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us. One translation says, God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't have to wonder if God loves us or not. He has demonstrated his love through the Lord Jesus Christ and his death. And really, in light of eternity, nothing else really matters, does it? There's finally one more observation, I think, that we need to make here in verse 16. Peter says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, there's been some debate, as you can imagine, there always is among scholars of what, what, what he's talking about here. And some suggest that he's talking about the Jew Jewish diaspora, that is, those who are spread around, away from Jerusalem, they're spread around in the various nations. Or even a more contemporary take on this, the Mormons think that Jesus was talking about the American Indians, right? But I think it's clear in this context that Jesus is talking about the salvation of the Gentiles. He's talking to Jews here. And he's telling the Jews, I have other sheep that I will bring into the fold. And so there will be one flock and one shepherd, meaning that 
Christ is going to bring together Jews and Gentile, Gentiles under salvation, under one flock. Now this means that God never intended there to be a Jewish church and a Gentile church. In spite of the fact that we live in a world today in which uh, uh, there are those who are trying to uh, force us back into this division of Jewish church and Gentile church. But since the Jerusalem council found in Acts, uh, that was made clear that God never intended for there to be two different churches. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 says that his purpose is to make the two, the Jews and Gentiles, into one new man, into one church, one flock. Now, we are to be one flock and with one shepherd. Now, when we look out into the world today, the church does not seem to be one flock with one shepherd, does it? And that's the intended purpose, to make us one. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, prayed that we would be one, all of his followers, all of his children, all of his sheep would be one in one flock, that we'd be one just as he and the Father are one. And we have so many denominations and, uh, and, and religious perspectives today, it appears almost hopeless that we would ever become one again. But I want you to know I believe in the truth of God's word, don't you? Do you believe that Jesus could pray a prayer that the Father would not answer? No way. Jesus prayed that we would be one as he and the Father are one, so the world may know that he sent us. With so much division among Christians in the church today, no wonder the world doesn't really believe our message. If we can't get along with each other. And Jesus said that unity will be a, a, a point of our witness to the world that the gospel is true. That the gospel is the power of God to change lives. But right now, reflectively, it seems like Christians, it is so much easier to divide than unite, isn't it? We didn't learn that from our father. We learned that from the world. Look how the world is dividing over race, over genders and all of this division that we see among us. And then we see this same division in the church. That is just worldliness in the church. The church should be characterized by its unity, by its love. It reminded me of a joke I heard long ago. I don't think you've probably ever heard me in, in years tell a, tell a joke from this pulpit, but this has, a, this has a purpose. I heard this long ago. I searched high and low and I found, finally found it. It's this. I was walking across a bridge one day and I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump off. So I ran over and said, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I, he said. Well, there's so much to live for. He says, like what? Well, are you religious? He said, yes. I said, me too. Are you a Christian or a Buddhist? He says, Christian. He says, me too. Are you a Catholic or a Baptist? Baptist. Wow, me too. Are you a Baptist, are you a Baptist Church of Good or Baptist Church? Or, or Baptist, are you a Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? Baptist Church of God. Me too. 
Are you the original Baptist Church of God or are you the Reformed Baptist Church of God? Reformed Baptist Church of God, me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879, or Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? He said, Reformed Baptist Church of God, uh, Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915. I said, Die, heretic scum, and he pushed me off. It seems to be that bad, doesn't it? Seems to be that bad. We're finding everything to divide over when we should be motivated in the opposite direction. Thomas Brooks, the uh, Puritan, says, labor mightily for a healing spirit. Away with all discriminating names, whatever that may hinder the applying of balm to, your heal, uh, to heal your wounds. Discord and division become no Christian. It's not becoming of any Christian, discord and disunion. He says, for wolves to wor worry the lambs is no wonder, but for one lamb to worry another, this is unnatural and monstrous. Calvin, in the midst of the Reformation, as you could imagine, the things that were going on, the threats and the, the things that were being said, Calvin wrote this, among Christians, there ought to be so, be so great a dislike of schism as that they may always avoid it so fast as lies in their power, that there ought to prevail among them such a reverence for the ministry of the word and the sacraments that wherever they perceive these things to be, there may, they, they must consider the church to exist. Nor need it be of any hindrance that some points of doctrine are not quite so pure seeing that there is scarcely any church which has not retained some remnant of former ignorance. In other words, not one of us has it all together, do we? And just because someone doesn't believe exactly the way you believe or I believe doesn't mean that we should separate or have schism because of that. We should always labor to bring Christians together. Now, probably the best way to think about this is to think in terms of primary doctrines, right? If we run across someone who denies that Jesus is the Son of God, that he, was, that he died and rose again from the dead, if they're denying some of these, <clears throat> we're not talking to a Christian here. There can be no unity in that. And so the primary doctrines is what should unite us. But there are so many other differences among denominations and churches that wherever the word and sacrament is being preached and practiced, there we should assume is a real church. Even if we disagree on some of the finer points or the secondary or tertiary doctrines, we must be working for unity and not division. And I believe that one day in the, in the future that the Lord's prayer will be answered, that we will be one just as he and the Father are one. Now, that's the unity among believers, but there can be no unity with the world, can there? John chapter 10, verse 19 through 21. There was again division among the Jews. That's what you'd expect in lost people. Shouldn't expect division among the saved. But among lost people, there's division. There again was division among the Jews because of these words. 
Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So Jesus, again, is bringing division. If the truth divides, so be it. But the division is happening not between one of his sheep and another of his sheep. The division is happening between his flock and him with those of another flock or from the world. And so there will always be division between the world and the flock. There will never be an end to wars and famines and trouble, really, until Jesus returns again. But there should be peace and unity in his church. We must all strive, work very hard, as Paul says, strive to keep this unity of the peace and the bond of love, right? And we should not only strive for it in this congregation among ourselves, but we should strive for this kind of unity among fellow believers in other churches as well. We need to love one another. And this is one of the ways that the world will know that the gospel is true. And it does, in fact, change lives. One of the ways we express our unity here is through the Lord's Supper. This is, in essence, what unity is supposed to be about. This is what drives us to remind us, one, that Christ died for us, his body, his blood. It's a reminder every week that our shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. But as we all come to the table together, it's a reminder that we are of one fold. That we are to be unified in our love for one another and our love for Christ. So Jesus, this morning, as our chief shepherd, desires us to come to his table. To be in fellowship with him and with each other. As a reminder that it's his blood and his body that saves us. And if Jesus so graciously forgave us for everything, all of our sins, just like the Lord prayer teaches us, we should graciously forgive others. And that's the source of our unity, the blood and body of Christ.